welcome to EFOIA. It is season six, episode 10. This is going to be our playoffs uh, special round two. If you haven't noticed, I'm your host, the host you never thought you needed. And once you've seen it, you'll know for sure. I'm joined by a very nice. special guest, Ender. Nailed it, right? And we're available basically on everywhere that you go and get your uh, podcast. If you're listening to a podcast, chances are we're available there. That actually checks out. How are you going, Ender? I'm doing good. You know, I was down at the podcast store this morning, picked myself up some euphoria for breakfast and now ready to go. Does that joke normally work? No. <laughs> I woke up... 30 minutes. Like, it's just, we're off to a great start. This is going to be wonderful. Okay. So, obviously, uh, Dracos can't be here. Get well soon, buddy. I brought you on, and I was very excited because I'm like, huh, jungle was a huge thing for this playoffs. Now, we're not going to mention our predictions. Shout out to Dracos. He's actually still correct in his predictions. I was horrifically wrong. And speaking of horrifically wrong, so are you on that Rogue 3-0 prediction before the Eve came out. Look, I nailed the 3-0 part of it, so I think I deserve <laughs> a little bit of credit for that one. So in attacking this, I think everyone wants to start with Fnatic versus Rogue, because I think that was like the one that people weren't sure about. But before we even get into that... Uh, we were actually having this discussion in the makeup room, and I 100% agree with you, and I'm going to now use this platform to flame everyone. We were flamed for basically the entire split for always talking about Fnatic and G2 and seeing how they <laughs> would win. And then when we finally decided, we're like, we got to go the other way. We got to start building up Rogue, building up Mad Lines. And then they lose. And now people are flaming us forever doubting Fnatic and G2. Now, obviously, I know the same people aren't flaming us. It's, you know the audience is so large that you have two people on either side, but it sucks to suck. Yeah, honestly, uh, it, it, the funniest thing, I was having a conversation with someone uh, on Twitter the other day, and they basically were like- Ah, where all good yeah. conversations start. <laughs> they're like, how could you predict uh, Rogue 3 over Fnatic? Like, Fnatic's history, like, obviously they're gonna show up in the playoffs. I'm like, well, I decided to judge them based off of their regular split performance where Fnatic were largely abysmal and Rogue were actually playing super well, super, you know, together League of Legends. And it en ended up being very different on the day, but I just thought it was funny that we were supposed to use the history angle once Fnatic got into playoffs and I just wasn't aware of that. Yeah, Ender, don't you know the history of Whippo, Selfmade, Nemesis, Reckless, and Hilly? And how many world finals they've gone to? Yeah, and how great they've done in EU finals. <laughs> oh. Speaking of this week. <laughs> oh, yikes. Okay, let's start with Shalka versus SK. Uh, if you guys don't know, spoiler alert, and if you haven't watched the playoffs or, I don't know, gone outside, uh, mute Don't now. go outside. It's dangerous. <laughs> uh, Shalka won, G2 won, Fnatic won. And even though we haven't seen like Mad Lions versus Rogue or Rogue versus Shalka or any of these different iterations, it feels like at the back end of this, we have our top three teams. Like, Pretty clearly, at least I think that Shalka is better than Madden Rogue. I am also in the camp of Shalka is better than Madden Rogue. Now, I, I'm curious to see what improvements Mad Lions and Rogue do make coming into this week, but this is the first time maybe in forever that our bottom seed in playoffs is just convincing everyone that they deserve to be going into finals weekend because they just are playing such good League of Legends right now that it would not even be out of this world to think that they would make it into finals over someone like a fanatic. What's crazy to me, though, is the amount of hate that Rogue are getting from the fan base because they've already qualified themselves for Worlds. And the thing is, is like people are uh, blaming our system and being like, no one should be able to qualify. And the thing is, is like, our system wasn't built for forward seeds. Our system was built for three seeds. And our third seed hasn't locked yet. And it would be the winner of whoever goes to the gauntlet of Mad Lions, Rogue, and Shalka. And so I think that the system is working as intended yeah. and is beautiful. Also, I think it's really unfair that Rogue is getting slammed when Mad Lions had just as many, if not more chances to qualify themselves, but Rogue consistently did it. Yeah, because looking at our playoff format, I, it's not even that our format wasn't built for sending four teams to Worlds. I don't think our format was built for having a sixth place team that is probably a top three or top four team in our league. Uh, because when you look at it, uh, Rogue played Mad Lions in the final week of the season, and the winner was going to lock Worlds. Rogue did that. Uh, so they beat out Mad Lions, who would be the fifth or the fourth place team in that, in that case, or the fifth place team. Um, and I, I feel like because of the regular season performance, like, they, like they're good enough. Like, no other team was supposed to be better than them, and I really do feel like Shulk is, like, largely a fluke within our system um, that will probably never happen again that we have a sixth-place team come in on, on, such a, on such a trail coming into the playoffs like this. What do you think makes Shulk is so good? 
Oh, there's a lot of things. Um, I think the number one thing that makes them so much better compared to when we like saw them earlier in the season or earlier in the year uh, is I feel like all of the players are playing with a lot of confidence right now. Like I, I've never seen an Abadage that looks this good. So on paper, this team never should be a playoffs team. If I'm thinking back to like how you know individuals played in 2019, um, I'm like, okay, well, even Gilius, I, I didn't think was going to be good coming into this. I was like, oh, Lor Gilius over Lorax, like that's that's an improvement, but it's not going to be great for them. Uh, so I think all of them are playing much better individually. But I also feel like they have just latched on to a very simple style of League of Legends. Like there's not a lot of frills attached in draft. Like they're just picking champions that work together well that they're going to be good at. Uh, and then they're executing on them super, super nicely. I think Gilius is playing out of his mind right now and was our best performing jungler in the regular season, which is completely, I would not have predicted that in a million years. What's interesting to me is, uh, hmm, how to say this? You you actually said it, I think, when we were having a conversation backstage that Schalke has uh, revamped how you think about ceilings for teams and players yeah. because everyone thought that they understood what the ceiling of a player like Abadage was, what the ceiling of a guy like Gilius was, or um, Neon Dreams, Odawamne. Like, people thought they understood what this team was and they suddenly get unlocked. And obviously, like, you can't separate that from we're in COVID-19 and people aren't playing on stage and maybe these have, like, massive factors and maybe, you know, this all has to come together for the perfect storm for Schalke to perform in the way that they have. But it is a very interesting discussion and discourse when globally right now there's a lot of conversation about, like, not flaming rookies and you know putting players down and thinking that players are washed up and trying to like use the eye test or or maybe it's a situation where you have like tpa when they win uh worlds where toys has like the greatest tournament of his life i think the same thing happened with ning from invictus gaming people thinking that ning is like a very strong jungler after that is like crazy to me i'm like he's good but he was not world's finals good you know what i mean like he had the greatest uh, best of five of his absolute career and credit to him. He did it when he needed to do, but it's like, so the idea of, you know, a player is capable of like 70 out of a hundred. And if they're throwing 70 every single time, the dude who should be better that can throw hundred decided to throw 50 on the day. And that's how you end up in a situation. And I'm unsure if that's what's happening with Shelka, where they're just throwing like 80 every single time. And like a mad lions can throw a 100 or a rogue can throw a 90, but now they're just like shooting thirties. Yeah. Cause it's actually really hard to know because our experience of uh, Schalke, we just don't have a lot of it. It's literally just been since, I think, week five and until now that they have been performing at this level. Uh, so knowing that they're going to have the consistency of, say, you look to a Fnatic or a G2 and it's like, it's playoffs time, they show up. You would never say that about a Schalke. Uh, and I feel like with the momentum they have behind them, I don't see them slowing down uh, for our playoffs. But then the question is, I mean, everyone's memeing it now, but could this team actually perform at Worlds? Uh, and would they be able to carry that momentum after a little bit of a break into that tournament? Or would they be able to do it if they're on stage? Ooh. Fun fact, I made a little graph. Uh, I'm going to say it was like two years ago when fanatic beat edg or whatever and i was like edg normally play at this and they're actually playing at this and that's why they lost and people like memed the shit out of me thought it was like a terrible awful idea and now i see this idea like repeated on reddit with like north american and european teams of like you fiddlesticks it's a like, bad idea obviously that's why it should be called God, it makes me so <laughs> angry but that's fine uh guys we have a very special interview it's cadrel today you've obviously seen him on the lec he will also be appearing on eu masters and joining us again on the lec this weekend i always love sitting down to talk with cadrel so let's take a in-depth jungle that i'm supposed to toss let's talk to cadrel as you guys can see, the wonderful, brilliant, talented face of Kadrill behind us. He's going to be joining us for the rest of the discussion. And Kadrill, I'm going to catch you up. We already hit Shalka versus SK. We already got that cluster out of the way. But we haven't gotten into the G2 Mad Fanatica Road reactions. And I'm going to give you first uh, taste here. Like, saying those four names, what's the one that you immediately want to grab first? G2, they're too good. I don't know, they're just gonna smash everyone, <laughs> that's for sure. They look so goddamn good against Ro against uh, who was it they were against? Mad, Mad Lions. Lions. Uh, Matt, sorry, yeah, Matt. They look so crazy good, even though Mad Lions won one game. I don't know, it just like G2 is, yeah, 
G2 again. And, when, and remind of that one game that Mad Lions took was when Yankos was intentionally griefing on that Lee oh, Sin yeah, performance. Was five levels down. <laughs> it was really bad. And he just kept doubling down. It's like, well, I, I messed up the last gank. Let's go for another one and dies again. What I think is interesting, though, and I'm really glad that I have two junglers now uh, to discuss this with, is that G2, so you have um, Mad Lions, no, excuse me. Yeah, Mad Lions, Shalka and Fnatic that are all playing kind of the carry jungler meta where uh, Shalka basically were perma playing the Hecarim hard priority on it before it was banned away from them. Um, Shadow, I don't know if I necessarily consider Lilia a carry jungler, but also went towards the Hecarim. And then of course you have Selfmade as like the big extreme who was doing like the Evelyn's Karthus. But G2 and Yankos are still in the Sejuani set hype train. And I'm kind of curious what your guys' take on that is where in the LPL, you have a bunch of hard carry junglers like the Nidalee popping up everywhere and kind of less of the, the set. And if there's one style that you think is better than the other, and if G2 are only able to get away with that because maybe caps is so good or if that's actually just the better way to play yeah so i'll take this first because i feel like it's it comes down to a lot of team skill and like where the skill falls in your lanes um because I, I do think g2's style is very much uh, an idea of we're better than you we can beat you before you come online um and a lot of that is driven through caps and how uh yankos and mickey play around his lane so if you get a, a champion like set and you get like a hard pop-off champion in the mid lane Syndra leblanc we even saw the aurelia from caps like you can use that pressure to shut down the enemy mid laner and then use that pressure to then walk into the enemy jungle and deny a Lilia or a Hecarim from actually farming up and reaching those strong breakpoints. So it, it comes down to whether or not you a have the skill to do it and then be trust your players to also capitalize in the early game to be able to shut it down because I feel like if you have these champions that can come online faster uh, and make an impact level three through five and six, uh, then you do have the ability to shut down these farming junglers. I think it just comes down to your laners kind of. Uh, it's like I will play a carry jungle to carry you, but I'll play an early game jungle for you to carry me. And I think that in G2, you have three arguably of the best laners in, in Europe, and they're always winning their lane. They're always consistently getting advantages themselves. So there's really no need for a carry jungle in G2 unless they want to, kind of, if that makes sense. Like, Yankos can always just play set, set, GY, try and get early leads and early Drake, play around his lanes, just cover them, use his time to cover his lane rather than, like, sit there farming. And as he covers his lanes or looks for these dives, if they get good trades, then their lanes will be naturally ahead going into mid-game. So you could put a farming jungler on G2, but I just don't think it would work as well as if you just covered the lanes, made them win, get early Drakes and Herald, and then snowball the game. So, this is I a mean, I, I see a world where you could put like Wunder on Cho'Gath or Orn, and then have Yankos on Kha'Zix, <laughs> uh, which I think they played once uh, throughout the split. I think I remember Yankos yeah, and Kha'Zix, but... I mean, it looks fine, like the game overall was fine, but why Why kind of shy away from the set if it's working? This is a bit of an abstract question and a bit of like projection in the future. Say that we are on the same patch for Worlds. Do you think that that makes G2 better suited for international competition or uh, worse because they're playing the same style that the LPL are playing with, or excuse me, they're relying on their laners to carry as opposed to their jungler and if they just get matched skill wise by like a rookie or a knight or a showmaker that suddenly this style falls apart hmm i, I feel like it becomes more difficult for sure um but in, in those situations i would be like well even caps versus like a rookie let's say in the mid lane like if you're able to get the upper hand in draft in that matchup then you can still play this type of style um Obviously, there's going to be limitations around it, but I also don't think that G2's... Like, to me, this is the best version of G2 is when they do play these compositions that come online earlier. Like, they did very similar things um, when they won MSI last year in 2019. So I still think this is probably the best look for G2 when they're able to use and capitalize on the strength of their laners. Kajal, which one do you think is feel... easier to execute, too, oh. like of the two styles? Well, actually, that's a good question to be honest. It's not something I've ever thought about. I think if you're playing the early game style, you need like big balls, right? You need to go for crazy plays, like flashing on people. If you're playing the farming style, you just need efficiency. So I guess it depends on the personality of the player, whether they're adaptable or not. I'd say the easier one is the farming jungler, to be honest. All you need to do is have good, efficient pathing. Whereas if you're playing the early game jungler and you're making these plays and some of them don't work, like you saw with Yankos and Lee Sin, you just become so useless so quick. So... The risk, for, the risk factor, I think it's more towards the early game jungle. I think if you fall behind, you're just completely out of it. So, yeah. 
Yeah, you also have to take risks, like setting up dives, uh, denying waves on side lanes and, and all of this. Um, I, I feel like one of the great things about having a early aggressive jungler, though, is that it does unlock your lanes to some extent. Um, if you're able to, like, having having a set versus Evelyn, let's just say, as an example, like, no matter what lane you roll into, as the set, you're probably going to win the 2v2 uh, until Evelyn can, can get an item. Um, so what it then allows you to is when Caps is on Norelia, he can really exploit the advantages in his lane, even if Yankos isn't immediately in the vicinity ready to help him, just having that pressure of the jungler enables you to play much more aggro in lanes and, and capitalize on that. In turn yeah, I think oh, go okay, I was just gonna jump in and say like that that's the whole point, right? The the volatile lane states. You pick like an Irelia, you pick like a Camille or something like that, the lane just instantly becomes volatile. If I get like a 10 20 CS lead, the game's won. If I fall behind, the game's lost. So if you're playing like Evelyn with these champs and your enemy team has like a set, it's just so so abusable, I think. In terms of kind of like the the ecosystem of how the junglers are interacting with their lanes, you guys are talking about the invisible pressure that a really powerful 2v2 jungler can provide. But it also feels like we're in an ecosystem where Caitlyn, if someone does get her hands on her, obviously she's probably going to be a permaban, but you have champions like this that exist that are strong in the skirmishes as well as the efficient, uh, efficient farming. And I think that's kind of like the issue where I see that there's two different styles that are being created with like junglers in the LEC, but I feel like the top tier picks, it doesn't really matter what the styles of the jungler are that they just abuse. And so it comes down to the comfort of the player. Or do you think that there is actually just like a best way to play the game or is there a best way to play for your team? Because in the conversation, especially when you bring in names like LS, there's like a strong belief that like there's only one way to play the game at maximum capacity or the other side of the conversation is you know, G2 can play it this way, Fnatic can play it this way, LPL can play it this way, and it's who's better on the day. Hmm, I think it slightly comes down to champions in a way, because if I look at the LPL playoffs, Nidalee Graves are permabanned. Not a single team is allowed this these two champs, so it's really weird to me that no one in EU plays it, and then those two old champions are also banned throughout the entire playoffs. But you're right with the Caitlyn. Caitlyn is definitely the champ where it's like, okay, bot lane's lost. Because if they get, like, Caitlyn and counterpick support, it's unlaneable almost, so... I feel like there are jungle picks where it makes it so it's really hard to play and they are really, really strong. So I think Lilia, Hecarim in Europe seem super strong, but it's not really unplayable. But when, it, when I look at LPL, for example, and Nidalee's on the enemy team, every single time I see this Nidalee, the enemy jungle is like three levels down, getting absolutely stomped. So this seems like a, a locked-in pick where you have a winning jungle matchup. Just, it's, I don't know, the metas are just so different right now. It's, it's crazy to me, I think. Yeah, to, to me, it, it does come down to a little bit of like team skill levels as well. Um, it, it was sort of a conversation that we we have a lot where it'd be like, take like an origin of the past, right? Or it'd be like, oh, like the slower style, the scaling type style uh, will beat a lot of teams. But when it comes to like the highest level of play, the teams that can exploit your mistakes uh, and, and capitalize on you early are going to win out. And I, I have a similar uh, view on the game, I feel like, where my personal favorite way to draft is in the way that you give yourself advantages for the m most amount of game time as possible pretty much so having an early an early game jungler that can take an advantage uh, and like play through aggressive mid like i really appreciate that because then you're in control of the game from level 1 it feels like so having bridging champions exactly. is what we used to call them exactly exactly mm -hmm. so I, I think that the way that g2 drafted in the last series i really really liked because it did give them these options and if you are good enough to capitalize on that then i feel like that's almost always going to be the best way to play until you reach an opponent that can match you uh, in those areas of the game. Uh, whereas the falling back to like scaling farming picks are going to net you a lot of wins and it's not like a bad way to draft by any means. Um, but it does come with the risk of a team that can capitalize on lane state very well, set up dives, deny you early on, and then you're playing from behind and hoping that you can defend against their attacks well enough to get to the break points where you turn around the scaling. Yeah, I kind of agree with them there. I think, I mean, especially myself, my personality is early game jungle as well, mostly. So I think it also comes down to personality, but I think the jungle pick can change your draft so much, right? If you have the early game jungle, you can have volatile lanes. If you have the farming jungle, you need consistently pushing lanes. So, I mean, if you look at Fnatic, they love the the farming junglers and it works for them. That's their play style. It's, it seems pretty strong. It's, I wouldn't say it's the best way to play the game, but it, the thing is with that play style of farming jungler, it just has really, it's really hard to punish. The only way you can punish it is if your laners kind of like make mistakes or they get caught out or they get dove. So if you have like champions who can just keep up the push and just play safe, then there's not many disadvantages to it. Whereas like 
the early game playstyle, which I think is probably the best playstyle right now in the game with the set. That's why I think set is just constantly banned a lot, because uh, he is the best at that style. Uh, I think just getting early game advantages is as, as difficult as it is sometimes. It will eventually always work. Level one to five, someone is going to be someone's going to be targeted. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to lose their flash. And this is all a huge, just a huge domino effect. Like that's what I love about the early game. So even if you don't get a kill, let's say I get his flash, he's going to have to get pushed in for the rest of the game. So now I can abuse his jungler, which opens up his top laner to get dove if I can push out the jungler, which opens up like a TP situation towards bot, which could lead to a bot dive or a Drake. So I think the game is just a huge domino effect if you pick early game. And I think if you can identify where to start the domino, you can really snowball the game. Yeah, and I think when we saw Fnatic in the regular season, we actually saw them get exploited a bit for their jungle style. Uh, one one constant problem I saw with the team was you would have lanes get their wave like sort of frozen against them or like in a bad position, and then they overextend to try and push that out while self-made is pathing away from them. Uh, and to me, that like it looked like it came down to like self-made valuing uh, efficiency over helping his team, or maybe they weren't communicating that perfectly, but it does fall into this idea of if you're playing the farming jungler, if you're playing to min-max your own personal gains, uh, then your team is going to be left vulnerable. So your laners have to be really, really on point to not have any mistakes because if you mess up your lane, that has the snowball effect in, in a different way of actually setting your jungler behind or they say, forget you, like now you're just going to die in the 2v2 if the enemy jungle comes. Which is hilarious because Fnatic... Uh... So here's like the thing, like I'm going to use the word inconsistent because in talking with Fnatic and in watching them, they're very intelligent individual players, especially in their wave management in particular. Hilly, how often he's cutting waves, uh, Whippo as well, like wave management's a huge thing when you talk to Fnatic's individual pieces, but they constantly make mistakes in lanes because they do try to play like on that edge. So as a, as a style of having Broxa, who almost hard forced like... Come here, Broxa. Come fix this yeah, lane for me. He would drop Come here. CS to help his lane. Exactly. He would like <laughs> screw up his pathing to just be on a leash for Fnatic. And that's how a lot of these players were, were tra like Blippo came when Broxa was the jungler. And now you have self-made and Fnatic's trying to completely reinvent their style where self-made's like on his crook camp. Blippo's trying to fix a freeze that happened against him. He gets ganked to the jungler and like, ah, classic Blippo, dead again, <laughs> greeted for the way. And I'm just like, that seems like such a dangerous style for Fnatic. Not that I don't think the players can't do it because they obviously have the IQ and the understanding to do it, but the patience and the <laughs> discipline. Gage is just sitting there laughing. He's like, I think I've ganked Whippo like that. I mean, it's true, actually. I have ganked Whippo like that last split. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. It's like, um, when it comes to farming junglers, it's like, first of all, in self-made position, do I want to take my Krugs? Do I want to push out top? Well, pushing out top would give me XP, but if the enemy jungler's there and we can't push out this wave, we're even more, like, screwed. So, and on top of that, if I show top as, as me then with my jungle, then he can invade my bot side if he's not showing, right? So if my bot camps are respawning and I have to push out this top wave and he can run into my bot side because he sees me pushing out top, ward my whole bot side, take my camps, then I'm just completely out of it. So giving away your position as a farming jungler is really difficult unless you're playing like Nidalee or Lilia. I think that it's like pre-six, you really don't want to do it. So I can see where self-mates coming from. Like the jungle mates will unite, unite a bit here. Like Whippo, you're just going to have to grief that wave or just base and run bot or something. I'm not coming top to help you with that wave. It's so bad for jungle sometimes, unless you full cleared your jungle and then you can help them. Um, but in most cases, it's kind of difficult to just spontaneously help out a lane that's had a bad wave management or has taken a bad trade. Uh, like you said, I think Broxa was like, uh, bing, 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 wave, push, wave, push, done. So uh, <laughs> it was a bit different back then, but yeah, I can see where self-made's coming from, just it makes people look like an inter sometimes maybe yeah maybe every once in a while uh i actually i really want to address a pet peeve of mine because when we look at like early game focused strategies versus like just trying to scale uh, a lot of people will say like oh like playing early game is very risky you know uh but just from our conversation here i feel like it can like there's a lot of risk in whatever style that you end up playing because even if you are playing the scaling jungler maybe it's not risky for that player in particular but it makes every decision his laners make in lane much more risky uh, and whether or not they mess up a lane and now they have to flip the coin it's like do i lose this wave and the next wave because it's frozen 
against me, or do I risk stepping up to break the freeze and the enemy jungler might be here and I die? So uh, I just wanted to address that because a lot of people will be like, oh, the game's bad because it's so risky and you have to take risks and get an advantage. I'm like, no, you just have to take advantage of good opportunities that present itself to you and the other side can be risky too. I think that there's there's kind of two schools of thoughts and like the most black and white and obviously like there's nuance to every conversation and I think that's uh, unfortunately what a lot of the discourse has lost when you're having it on social media platforms. You don't get to have the nuance or like the full length discussion um, where you have on one side and it used to be the LCK style where you play as defensive as possible then you wait for the, your opponent to make a mistake and then you punish the mistake and that leads to high consistency style of League of Legends. And then on the other side you had the LPL for the longest time where you play as aggressive as possible. You force mistakes and then you punish those mistakes. But obviously in attempting to force mistakes you also open yourself up and it's a feast or famine style of play which when it's dominant is incredibly dominant but when it backfires that's also why you see the huge inconsistency that the LPL had for so long and there is definitely like nuance and middle ground to both of these but I personally am a fan, so my bias coming out of the aggressive style. I wonder why. I feel like casters <laughs> are often trained by the regions that they start in. And um, again, like no shade to LS. I think his opinions and his voice are really valid and he's a very intelligent uh, man about the game. But I do also think that he's trained by the region that he studies the most, which is the LCK. And that has been for a very long time what the LCK uh, prefer. But unfortunately, the LCK are no longer the same powerhouse that they once were. And I think meta change has a lot to do with that. And we had the perfect storm where the meta changed exactly into Invictus Gaming and IG were suddenly yeah. world champions. I was like, what hell am I living in? Yeah, but also let's be clear, like scaling scaling works. Like we saw we saw what Fnatic did to Rogue in, in their drafts and how Rogue just didn't have an answer into being able to shut them down. Ooh, time to talk about Rogue. Yeah, there you go. Cadrill. <laughs> we heard from so many teams about Rogue and how they weren't scary. They were over. It was mostly G2 that were taking shots at Rogue. But you have actually gone on the defense of Rogue of saying that they're a good yeah. team. And obviously, like, they're a good team. Like, no one's going to take that away from Rogue. But what the hell happened? Uh, I don't know. They just looked really dizzy. Like, uh, <laughs> they drafted the early game jungles. So... I mean, you draft Sejuani Rennington, you go to the enemy top dive, then you get double killed by the Evelyn level four. It's like question mark. And then you ban out the Evelyn, they get Carthus anyway, and then you don't do anything still. And you, the only the only thing that I saw in that series, like any proactivity that I really saw, was when they had Kalista Blitzcrank. They were like all over the map trying to make plays. And granted, Inspired was with no one set, but apart from that, it just kind of looked like they rolled over and died. Like they just they had some team fights, complete mispositioning. Like Larson getting hit by a hook in a five-man five-five-on-five five dragon fight was just illegal, and I don't know. A lot of their gameplay was just really uncharacteristic. I'd say like the consistency completely disappeared, the early game snowballs completely disappeared, the, the team fighting completely disappeared, and some of their drafts were questionable at best based on how the players were performing. Like if you're gonna put Finn on GP in the third game after he's had the last two games on Renick the last two games on GP Rennington, he's been like kind of useless. Let's let's be honest. You may as well just put him on something like a Scion or an Orin and try to like adapt to the enemy draft. Try to match this self made with a carry jungler. Try to like find ways around it. Don't put Larson on a zero three games in a row. Maybe an Akali could do something like good for them because Akali is quite strong now. Or try putting uh, Inspired on Kazix or Lee and maybe something will work. Like there's no point just doing the same exact draft three games in a row, hoping that they'll wake up and then nothing happens. So. Yeah, the only thing I really liked about the draft was <clears throat> Kalista Blitzkrieg, so yeah. In the conversation of um, kind of draft versus execution, and again, probably both were factors that led to the outcome, but there seems to be a heavy emphasis on rogues' uh, ability, or in some people's opinion, inability to draft. Um, where do you find like the weight? Was this, like rogue had fine drafts outside of kind of the complaints that you just made and this was massive execution errors like you know you shouldn't die to evelyn in that 2v2 top side you shouldn't allow her to get those clears off you should be more proactive or do you think that rogue have to like completely show different drafts like is this would you be fine seeing rogue run and azir draft back again and then just clean up their execution mistakes or do you want them to be like i need the akalis i need the scions i need something else yeah so i'm perfectly happy with the azir we saw larson azir all year long and he's been phenomenal on the champion and the the staple of rogue drafts for the split were you get usually it's like three tanks and then an azir for larson and some like a for hansama and that that like worked really well for rogue uh i think 
A, yes, the execution was abysmal for them in the early game and with champions that, and you're just like hyper feeding like the scaling champions on the other side. So I think if that goes away, you all of a sudden have like a much better shot in the game. Um, so the two things I would like to change is I want to see Finn go back to tanks in the top lane uh, and play that style, which also then opens Inspired up to play scaling jungle picks uh, that I've heard he's good at. Uh, so I would love to see him have the opportunity to shine on one of those. And then also, like Hadel, you were talking about the Callista Blitzcrank, which I agree was phenomenal. So why in game three do they then go to Ezreal Braum if the only thing that was working for them in game two was Callista Blitzcrank? Like, you cannot find a more polar opposite style in the bot lane. And then they're just like, yeah, okay, we're along for the ride. Who's going to carry this early game when you're playing set jungle and you have a GP lane and a zero lane and an Ezreal Braum lane? Like, Larson has nothing to do. Calling that a GP lane too is like, very generous. That was like a caster yeah. man. Like. For a minute and 30 seconds, it was a GP lane. I, I feel like, I mean, the Ezreal Brown made sense, kind of, but not really for their style, right? They picked Senna, and then they picked Ezreal, and they picked Nautilus, so they counted with Brown. So it was more of like an individual lane kind of thing, even though they yeah. died level two and got gave Reckless a double kill. I mean, the whole mis-execution thing is just such a big deal. Like, you've got your top laner flashing level five every single game and dying sometimes in solo kills on carries, which your first picking. That doesn't make sense already. And then you're drafting the early game jungles, not getting leads. Azir's like AFK and there's tower farming, which is good, but he has no frontline. He has like one frontline, maybe a set and a brown. That's it. Whereas the enemy team has like Scion and then like an Evelyn's right behind you trying to one shot you. And then there's a Nautilus in your face or something. So, uh, yeah, I didn't really like the whole drafts for team fights at least. But um, like you said, the only real proactivity they had was on the Callista Blitzcrank. I think that they can default to their own style if they fix their mistakes. I just feel like they have, I don't know if it's focus or communication or what was going on, but their natural draft should give them an advantage, but they're falling behind with them. So like I said, maybe they could swap it up. I mean, I know Larson's really good at Akali and LeBlanc. Maybe he wants to throw like a curveball in the best of five, right? If you're if you're zero one down, zero two, and it's just not working and the playmakers aren't stepping up, your lanes aren't being consistent. It's not bad to just go for something different, right? Put, mm -hmm. put Finn on Jeep, on, on Zion, put Larson on LeBlanc, try play through mid instead of playing through top try to get a roaming support like Bard instead of having like a AFK support like Braum. I don't know, just trying something different in a best of five because either you go into the game three, you play the same style and you lose again, which is going to be obvious after the last two games, or you at least try something different. It, maybe if it works, you get a game and you can try that in the next best of five, like the curveball. And if it doesn't work, then just go back to the drawing board for what you want to do for the next best of five. Yeah, I also think, yeah, you said roaming support for Vander. I think that's actually really huge for Rogue. Uh, their, pro their proactivity, I feel like, drops a lot in the mid game. Uh, and if Vander is now on a champion that can team up with Inspired and get stuff done, uh, they're going to have a much better shot uh, against, you know, teams that are beating them in the early game. Because Rogue weren't really challenged in the early game during the regular season. Like, they were able to get, come out with advantages in almost every game. Uh, and I feel like that allowed them to coast into, oh, you know, we can chill through mid-game, wait for the team fights on three items. But if in playoffs, the other teams around them are stepping up, they're going to need to be able to play that period of time uh, much better. What tilts me is the conversation where people are like, ah, oh, team that never changed their play style goes into best of five and suddenly gets smashed when teams have time to prepare for them. Who could have seen this coming? That was actually like a grabs tweet. Like I'll just like <laughs> at grabs and flame there. But I'm just like, if that was so obvious, why didn't why didn't more teams do that during the regular split? Now credit to grabs in G2, Rogue have never beaten. <laughs> They're like 0-9 against them. So like maybe G2 is truly the only team that has like figured this out. But I don't know. I just think it's also a little bit disrespectful for like how consistent, how good Rogue were for the uh, entire split. Like, and people will also make the argument like, this is why best of one doesn't matter. I'm like, they had 18 best of ones or people could have like, I don't know, banned out uh, GP or like maybe force fit on GP apparently. <laughs> um, well, I wish I had answered that question. Honestly, it's like, it's hard to say. It's, I'm not really sure where to go with the the point i mean best of one granted it's best of one right so they did play the same kind of style for best of one right scaling mid early game jungle they played one or two farming jungles here they played like winning bot matchups wherever they could and then just to carry top and it worked it like worked like you said for like maybe 10 best of ones in a row they lost the best teams which is kind of the thing where you play like going back to your point earlier about scaling and then early game rights like if you pick scaling all the time like the lck used to do you're basically telling the enemy team that you suck, you're not going to end the game, and we're going to win because you suck. And then if you play the early game, it means that you suck because we're just going to dive <laughs> you and you're going to lose your lane. So the LCK kind of old play style is similar to what Rogue kind of did in a way that 
you will outscale them based on their bad performance, which will only work up to a point until you play against a really good team. And then when you play against teams like G2 and they just keep losing, I wonder if that style is like kind of showing where they play all these kind of like mages mid and stuff. But the early games, like if they if they don't do something in the early game, then you're just gonna lose naturally. So yeah, I, I'm not really sure where to go with it to be honest. I mean, it is best to one at the end of the day. They won loads of games, so I think give them sort of some credit for actually finishing first place, winning almost all of their best of ones, and then I guess their playstyle was kind of predictable. Team fight scaling, a little bit of early game. But it wasn't too predictable where I think to the point where you could punish it. I think it was early game. Like, I know you want to speak yeah. under so I'm sorry. I think it was uh, early game, but not in the way that people think about early game. Usually when the audience or the community says, like, early game, they think about, like, diving and killing people 1v1 in lane phase. And Rogue was just not about that. They were about, like, hard finding push priority in lanes and then using constantly having push priority to make sure that they had first movement on objectives and swapping. Like, they were famous for, you know, before level 6 Drake into a Herald swap, into first tower, into bot tower, and they would do this, like, every single time, like, clockwork and just beat people. And they never had to rely on Finn being able to compete in a 1v1 lane matchup. They would just have him weak side top laner was like the joke, but like, let's be honest, if you're just swapping out of your lanes all the time because all you do is hard push waves and then rotate around the map, that's why Rogue's 15 minutes were so good is because yeah. they didn't actually play teams for 15 minutes. They played PvE. Yeah, and, and it worked because they had an early game jungler, always like a set for inspired. They had scaling mid and bot lane picks that also usually got shoved for them. Uh, and you know, that enabled them to find these early objectives and like snowball into two, three item fights. Um, now, the one thing that I wanted to say was I was quickly looking at like some drafts. Uh, it's not like teams haven't tried to play early game against Rogue. Like I, I was looking at, like there were plenty of drafts where you know you have an early game jungler, early game mid lane picks, uh, where you try to blow up in the game, and Rogue were good enough to shut that down. Um, but the whole time during the regular season, I feel like a lot of what uh, me and you were saying, Frost, was like, look, Rogue have a very good style that we think is like very consistent, they're gonna pick up a lot of wins, but if a G2 and Fnatic play at their peak level, they can find the cracks and, and they can open it up. And it goes back to sort of like the scaling versus early game conversation we were having much earlier um, in the call. Uh, so I feel like this is something that we did see coming for Rogue, but we did not see Fnatic showing up at the level they did. Because again, in this series, I predicted Rogue 3-0 because for eight weeks, Fnatic showed me no signs of life. Uh, and then they come in with a, with a really good performance the last weekend. I think the way Rogue works for me, like when we played them on stage both times and like just throughout the scrims and practice and just watching their games, I feel like their strongest point in the entire game is when they swap, like Frosk said. It's like, not only do they swap like most teams and push your tower and hit it, if they think that top matchup's losing or bot matchup's losing and you match the swap, they'll just push out the wave and run back bot instantly. And then you're like, okay, now we're top with our bot lane, so what do we do? And then you're like, okay, we'll push and go back bot and keep matching them. And then they've already pushed out bot and know you've base and they've run back top already. So like, they get this like advantage by just making you want to force on lanes that you should be able to force on on side lanes, but then they just don't allow it. They just kept swapping, 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 swapping. And it was so, so annoying to play against. And I can <laughs> see like in, in stage games, they do it as well. And it just gets them such big advantages. And I think lane swaps is the best, best, like the strongest factor Rogue has, whether it's like a level one lane swap, which, which they kind of introduced into the LEC, or if it's like a level six lane swap for the Herald, or like a full five man move for a swap, or like when it comes to just swapping with bot prior and then having a losing top matchup go bot, and then swapping back to stop the dive, I don't know, they, this is the way that they get normal advantages, but I didn't see it like kind of like once in the series. I think there was one where they swapped with Kalista Blitzcrank, got a double kill from Reckless stepping up a bit too far. Uh, but apart from that, they didn't really show their sort of trendy lane swaps that much. Which is why I think the most important thing to beat Rogue isn't actually like early game or scaling, like these are secondary factors, it's push priority. You had a Thresh Ash lane from Reckless and Hilly and you've locked Vander and um, Hansama underneath tower, which they have one of the highest forward percentages. Like they never play there and suddenly Rogue could no longer run away from their opponents by just bouncing between lanes and running around. Suddenly they had to actually mm -hmm. lane and that's how you always beat Rogue. <laughs> if you actually got to lane against them, you would smash uh, smash them. Yeah, Fnag doubled down on the push too because they, they had Thresh Ash, they had the Lucian, and then they had uh, an Urgot in the top lane. And like it, it was kind of crazy to look at too because it was like, you have all this early game pressure 
and then a, an Evelyn in the jungle. But it goes back to the idea of, hey, if you actually just have a lot of great early game champions that can, you know, outplay, get out of ganks, they all have like some form of mobility to dodge uh, early game plays from Inspired 2. Well, then Evelyn's going to get to level 6. She's going to be able to get to a point where she's very, very strong. And then you hard win every 2v2, 3v3 around the map uh, because of the early mid game power of a lot of these champions. So I thought it was really clever from Fnatic. And I, I especially thought their game one draft was kind of mind breaking. So we've got about <laughs> four minutes and 30 seconds left with you, Cadrill, and I do want to get like some predictions now that I feel like we've uncovered the secrets of wow. Rune. Now. Um, I think the question that everyone actually really cares about is who's going to be the final spot for Worlds, if it's going to be Schalke or Mad Lions. And I don't know if you have any strong opinions there, if you kind of want to like verbally walk us through your thought process. I've been asked so many times this question throughout the week, so I think I've gotten my answer. I think it's going to be Schalke. I think Schalke is going to last, last World Worlds. They have so much momentum from the Miracle Run. I feel like Mad, they showed some signs of like good gameplay in the um, in the G2 series. I think their drafts were a bit off here and there, but I just think that Schalke has such good consistent laners, and Gilly has been so consistently good over the last couple of weeks, and their draft priorities are a little bit different to everyone else, where they just like draft a little bit of farming jungle, but a little bit of early game too, and then really good team fights. So... Uh, I really like the way they draft. I think that they completely stomped SK with their gameplay. So, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a bit Schalke fan right now. I think Schalke is <laughs> going to make it. I think Mad Lions need to pull something out the hat, try and get some creativity going. Uh, I think that if they play the way they played against G2 with those drafts, I think that they're going to really struggle. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely on the Schalke hype train. So, follow up question: How far can Schalke go? Uh, I think if they beat Mad Lions, like really like a 3-0 or a 3-1 i think there could be a chance they go to the final because i just think that if they completely stomp mad lions then i think they're in such a good spot seeing as mad lions did put up a fight against g2 they took one game so i i would have a lot of hope in Schalke. obviously if they lose they're out so yeah I, but I, I think if they win the mad six Lions series like 3-0 3-1 they're probably going to the final but if it's like a 3-2 close game then i'm a bit worried for the next best of five so yeah do you how much uh credit do you put into this idea of like Schalke being unlocked by not being on stage because I know that there's like a conversation that's happening where if you send Schalke to worlds and suddenly you know you're performing more closer to an on-stage environment that you suddenly don't get the same performance like do you think there's a big difference between what happens in scrims and playing from home versus what happens on stage uh I think there definitely is there's so much less pressure you know when you go to stage games it's like you have to one hour before the game the, you have to get ready the cab comes it's like a 30 minute ride you're in the car listening to music like the tensions in the air kind of you're in the backstage waiting for the game to start watching the other game trying to focus so there's so many more factors to like pressure whereas if you're kind of here you're just sitting around waiting for your game joining the lobby in your slippers and then yeah getting ready to play so it's <laughs> like uh there's obviously a huge pressure difference i think that if you look at shark i think odoamne is definitely not affected by the difference i think i think he's the one player i can confidently say that i mean he's played at the semi-finals of worlds right so i don't think whether stage or scrims i think he plays the same but there is an argument for all the other players right um there could be the factor of the online play i think ever since the online play got introduced it's been the craziest split of ever in lec almost like the teams have been so clumped up and close together all 10 teams at the end of the split were practically almost the same in wins, so that could have a factor to do with online, and I think Schalke did struggle a little bit in spring when it was on stage, um, so there could be an argument made there, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Cadrill. Do you have any last plugs that you want to shout out? Uh, <laughs> shout out to the LEC broadcast team for having me on the weekend again, and you guys are so awesome. That is such a solid answer. <laughs> You're supposed to be like, you can follow this guy over on his Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash Cadrill. I nah, think that's 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 a man that wants to come back is what that sounds like. Uh, I'm at Cadrill and everything. So, yeah. Perfect. If you guys want to have some high uh, level League of Legends from a very eloquent and intelligent jungler, be sure to check out Cadrill. I know that we'll for sure have him back on the LEC. Thank you so much, Cadrill. Wave and smile. Thank you so much, guys. Always such a great time to talk to Cadrill. Um, yeah, that's my generic. Yeah, I'm also intelligent, <laughs> talented, and a jungler. So I don't know if that got cut out the first time I said it. I'm going to say it again. Also Ender. And hilariously, we're like, now we've got 15 minutes left to make predictions or wrap the episode. And Ender's response was, what else is there to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's take a look at what we have. So we've we've talked at length what happened before. Now we get to talk about what's about to happen, which is Mad Lions versus Schalke. You already heard from Cadrill that he thinks that Schalke is going to go the distance. I believe you also think that Schalke is going the distance. I'm a believer. I'm like the number one fan, you know, holding up the the little finger thing in the air. I don't know. They're they're Gilius, Gilius, king of yeah. Gleason. Actually, you're the number one fan. I sorry, I coined that. I forgot about that. The thing is, is that I didn't even make the enchantment. I believe it was either you or Dracos. It was Dracos that wrote it. Yeah. And then I just stole it again for another segment because it was so good. And I just performed it, but apparently now I'm the Shalka fan yeah. girl. It was top tier. It was top tier. I mean. <laughs> We call it method acting. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a Schalke 3-0 believer. I, I'm doubling down. You know, the 3-0 predictions went well for me last week, except one of them. So uh, I, I, I do feel like Schalke uh, have so much momentum behind them. I I just feel like they're a very cohesive team. Whereas if you look at Mad Lines, they have fallen off so hard since like almost the same time that Schalke started rising to power. Like I think they've lost eight of their last 10 games or something something insane like that. Uh, and I feel like the, the, the spark that was once there for this team just isn't really there anymore where they were able to find like so much innovation early on into the split. Um, and I think that definitely like helped them out a lot. Um, but now I, I don't see it to that same level, and I feel like they're kind of all over the place when they play the game. The cohesion is just not there for me. I did like that over the course of the series against G2 that um, you could see that Mad Lines were trying to problem-solve what was happening to them, especially when it came to the immense pressure that was happening in the mid lane yeah. where they're constantly ganking. So while Mad Lions have continued their loss streak in their best of five against G2, only taking a single game that Yanko's gift wrapped uh, for them. I do not think that Schalke can beat Mad Lions in the same way that G2 dismantled them through consistent pressure through mid lane. Yeah. And that's not to say that Abadage is not a phenomenal mid laner. Faker Dage is definitely performing, but that's not typically how Schalke beat you. They beat you through their incredible objective setup and the uh, teaming up of Dreams and Gilius in specific in that setup for their vision control and then their execution on team fights, not through ganking you repeatedly in mid. Yeah, and, and I do think Mad adapted really well like switching uh humanoid over to like champions like global ultimates like the galleon the twisted fate um now when i look at what shalka bring though i'm like okay how do you actually exploit this team because i feel like at least in draft they're not very vulnerable uh the only thing that i'm thinking of is their bottom lane and it comes down to the champions that they play uh because i feel like they actually just do not get a lot of bands thrown their way uh, and they'll latch onto a bot lane that works for them and they will like cling to it for like i think they played senna nautilus every single game in their series against sk uh throughout the regular season you can see these patterns emerge too or it'd be like senna tom kench for two weeks only and that would be like ezreal plus bard for a weekend and it, it they would go for these same bot lane pairings so i feel like if you maybe targeted away the Senna is a huge pick I think for Neon um the Ash and the Ezreal are the two other things that he falls back onto uh so if Mad Lions were on blue side and they wanted to go hard that route I am curious what Shalka look like without a stable safe bottom lane uh because when I look around their lanes I feel like the bot lane is the area of the map where I'd be like they're the least likely to pop off in the two versus two uh and potentially vulnerable if Dreams is off roaming and I think that that does give uh, credit to if you ban an Ash and an Ezreal, mm -hmm. and then you have a Callista blue side pick, and then you can try to punish. So let's say you go Callista Nautilus, and you can do what G2 uh, did to Mad Lions, where Cinna, one of the weaknesses that she has is her inability to contest the push and the wave. And Callista's going to have kill pressure on her, although it is hard because Callista is such a defensive bot lane, like you're saying, it's impossible to break her. But you can at least try to hard shove her in and then unlock your support, who's either on like a Nautilus or a Leona, to hard gank mid lane. And so I think that's a route, like Kaiser yeah. unlocking him and allowing him to attack the map. Because I agree with you, I think it's about... It's about attacking the bot lane through separating Dreams and Gilius, or just making sure that Neon and Dreams don't just get like a free pass into like infinite scaling. And if that yeah. is giving away the Senna because you know that it's going to be picked, at least having something that can punish her for how slowly she pushes out waves and not just getting priority in the lane and taking plates with it, getting priority in the lane and then eating the map with it. Yeah, because Shalka's bot lane turns into so much pressure for them. I think my favorite play that I see Dreams do consistently is 
is uh, what, what you'll see from Neon is he'll go for like one of those cheater recalls on wave three. And usually where the support would recall with the ADC, Dreams, who's full HP. He just stays. No, he doesn't even say. He just sprints to mid lane. So you take this you take this gap where the enemy bot lane's like, oh, they just recalled. It's fine, whatever. And all of a sudden Nautilus is showing up mid lane. That's a flash or a kill. And then they continually do this where he's able to find roam timers where the enemy support can't match. And that's what I think makes Dreams so good because... The standard play that everyone knows by now is when both bot lane back, the supports run to the mid lane, and then they sort of look at each other. I like and how you're nothing like a happens. 50s announcer now. Yes, you're exactly. like, oh, and they're running towards a pixel brush. They'll place the walls. Ah. <laughs> and they're out of the gates. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Uh, but what Dreams has done is he's found more opportunities to be like, oh, I can actually just run mid lane here, or instead of after my reset running to mid, I run to top lane or something like this. And it's these windows that do give Shalka their advantages in the early game. And I think if you put the bot lane on a less powerful tubers two where they can't take those free resets or Dreams isn't on a good roaming champion or Neon needs him to stick around in the bottom lane, that gives you, maybe it doesn't give you the ability to like kill them, but it removes that element of pressure that Dreams is putting on the rest of the map. Ash. I think Ash is like going to be a big pick for that series between both the AD carries because of what she offers. And I hope that she continues to rise into priority. Now, uh, as we look then at the other side of things, it's Fnatic versus G2. Kings, Legacy, Dynasty. Here we fiddlesticksing are again. <laughs> um, I mean, I think everyone's going to say that G2 are still heavy favorites here. But I was having this conversation. I don't know if you were in the room for, for Story Meet of kind of reframing the matchup between Fnatic and G2. We always talk about it, how it's the best rivalry in League of Legends, how these are the teams that are consistently showing up. But the thing is, is that like, it's not a rivalry anymore. Like, especially not for 2020 because Fnatic can't beat G2. They haven't even taken a game. Zero nine against them, I think. Yeah, and you know. Zero seven. Like Fnatic, the name and G2, the name have rivalry, but these players really don't anymore outside of Reckless versus all of G2 because it's just a new roster, like maybe Whippo and Hilly to an extent as well. And I wanted to try to figure out a way to kind of turn the page on that that narrative and start building up more of a history of like these orgs in the same way that like the history of the rocks tigers has impacted the lck the history of orgs like fanatic and g2 have impacted europe and the the uh global competitive like so many of these incredible players have come through like the orange and black like whatever corny way you want to say it or like the silver and black or i guess it's red white and black now for g2 and gone on to either do other great things or like help build up teams and it just feels that we have these these two pillars of eu that everything is built on and even if you're not like an acting member of fanatic and g2 you probably went on to carry i'm gonna say this another garbage region into a final you know what i mean like <laughs> sure sure uh, i wonder if it's if it's fair to say because both of them were so dominant in very different periods if like fanatic almost paved the way for like Europe's success internationally. And then G2 took all the credit. And I don't want to take anything away from G2 when I say that, but you have like a fanatic that were so dominant for so long. Then in 2018, they make the world final and that's huge for Europe, right? Like everyone, everyone knows that's a big deal. They get 3-0 and it's like, okay, you know, maybe it wasn't the greatest tournament or whatever, like all the excuses start coming out, but it was still a great accomplishment. And then 2019 rolls around, G2 steel caps, and they go immediately win MSI. And then they make a world final for themselves. So their legacy in like comparing their 2019 to Fnatic's 2018 is always going to be remembered so much more highly, even though they both finished in exactly the same place. And they're now going into 2020 and a lot of it's carrying over where they win the spring split. They just dismantle Fnatic again. Uh, so it, it almost is like, I don't want to say like Fnatic or the has-beens, but they were there right before G2 and G2 just came in and took all the glory. I mean, I think it almost feels like you must have worn a Fnatic jersey or a G2 jersey before you can be a champion. And I mean, like the stats back that up, especially in Europe, the only team to ever win a title that wasn't Fnatic or G2 was Alliance. <laughs> and so like, I guess Reckless also then carries that legacy because he's the only yeah. player that has <laughs> not been on Fnatic or G2 to also win a title. But it's just crazy. Like, I I wonder if someone did that, and I'm sure someone in the comments will. If you took 
the Fnatic and G2 players and just like the collective number of championships that they've won in North America and Europe and like added it all up, how crazy it would be. And we keep, again, it's changing the narrative from being like this team versus this team into if you are going to be someone in Europe, at some point, you have to wear this jersey. And like, it doesn't mean that you can't be a great player before Fnatic, but it's always been like, oh, Fnatic, their ability to scout talent and to like mold it. And like, that's part of it. But also, if you're a good player that's up and coming, you want to be on Fnatic or G2 because otherwise you're not yeah. going to win. So is it Fnatic so much as scouting talent as the greatest players in the world get the opportunity to play for Fnatic and G2? Yeah, I mean, we literally saw it with Selfmade, right? He came in on SK and he was rookie the split jungler, you know, phenomenal player. And Fnatic trying to make upgrades to compete with G2, well, Selfmade's going to go to that team. So I do feel like there is, uh, especially for young players that are, are shooting for the stars, there's such an allure just to wear the jersey. Like in the same way that I feel like a lot of people would be like covet like in North America, like a TSM jersey or C9 jersey. Now it would be like a TL jersey. It's it's you're seeking those teams. All you ever want to do is play for those teams because you know if you play for them, you have a chance at winning. No one comes into the LEC now and is like, ah, yes, I'm going to, sorry, Cajal, I'm going to join Excel to win a title. <laughs> like that's just not happening right now. Like you're going to join one of the two power houses to do that which is why then the transition to tl like we said it back then but just to reiterate it you know like what were brox's options he was already on fanatic he was not going to place yankos on g2 you if you want to win and you want to be a competitor you have to go to tl otherwise there's not a chance in hell that you ever like that was his only other option and i think that's also then very interesting like the dynamic that that creates of like the greatest european players like Let's take Crownshot, for example, and SK. Crownshot was ready for Worlds. SK were not ready for Worlds. That makes sense. This isn't like a flame at SK, like very young, inexperienced mid laner, role swap top laner. We've said it time and time again. It makes sense that SK were going to falter. Congratulations for how far they got. But like, Crownshot's screwed. Unless Perks decides to take a year off and suddenly G2 open up a position in their ADC, like Reckless is on Fnatic. Perks is on G2. Imagine being an AD carry player in your Oh my god, you're so like upset is just time to swap roles. (laughs) You 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 look over at TL and you're like, please, like just take me. And you just hope that you can go to worlds, you can prove yourself over there, and then you get your opportunity. It's just it's so devastating. Yikes. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy to think about uh just how like even like looking back on like the cap swap, like leaving Fnatic is a crazy thing because like, as you're saying, like usually the only place to look is like a really strong North American team if you're trying to, you know, make make a lasting impact. So yeah, like even that him moving to G2 was such a big deal back then because like to give up the Fnatic jersey to go play for another European team, like that's also unheard of. Just think about it this way. You literally went to world finals and you won your title and you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to swap teams. Like what championship players and this is what i'm saying g2 stole all fanatics glory like they literally just first they stole caps and then they went on to take everything else oh okay seriously who's gonna win g2 i mean caden was very confident it was gonna be g2 does that say weird champ okay never mind moving on um yeah i i feel like so first of all i don't think fanatic can just run back what they played against uh rogue uh, against G2. I don't think that's going to work. G2 are a much more proactive team in playing through and around mid lane. So I feel like Nemesis, even if he's on the Lucian, that's probably not the best look for him because they're also... Not going- against Caps. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, if you're playing Lucian, you need Selfmade to be on something that is going to be playing through mid lane. Otherwise, you're going to be pushing up, you're going to be taking a trade, and then Yankos and Mickey show up and you're done. Uh, so I think the draft is going to need to change for Fnatic. And that's something that hasn't been super successful for them this year um like usually again they're they're finding strategies and they're sticking to them even when they're not the most cohesive so i'm curious if with a week fanatic are able to come up with something different because i i look at like how do you actually beat g2 and i don't think you can beat it by contesting through mid like you obviously have to be able to like shut down caps and hold them off but i actually want to see nemesis back on i'm gonna say it a twisted fate, like actually sort of how Mad Lions tried to adapt over the course of the series. Global mid laner is going to give you a big impact there, at least run a teleport, something like that. I think Galio um, might be a good show. I think Galio would be really good. 
Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll see if we see Galio. Uh, that said, we're now coming to our conclusions. Reminder, guys, that playoffs continue this weekend where you can see if Shaka are seriously going to make the Miracle Run versus Mad Lions. Mad Lions, one more shot to get to Worlds before Rogue will be the final boss that faces. And then, of course, uh, whoever loses between G2 and Fnatic has a chance to fight. It's going to be Fnatic. Has a chance to fight their way back into the finals. Will it be Fnatic, Shaka, Rogue, or Mad that make it to the finals versus G2? Oh, are you asking me that, or is that like a... No, now I'm going to ask if you have uh, anything else that you'd like to add. You got a minute 30. Get your plugs in. Get my plugs in. Um, I don't know. I'm just sort of chilling right now, playing playing some basketball, you know? Yeah, I've seen your basketball. You see, it was really good. I can dunk. That's <laughs> I, cool. I checked them on the TikToks, if you oh, will. you checked them on the TikToks? I didn't, I didn't upload any there, so... No, that's fine, because I don't actually know how to use TikTok. I don't really understand it. That's okay. Yeah. It's not the right age group. You still got a minute 20. I've still got a minute 20. What am I supposed to do with a minute and 20 seconds? I feel like we're just sort of running down the clock here. Explain Skyrim to me. No. Okay. (laughs) I'm playing Valorant to you. I've been playing Ghost of Tsushima right now. I think that that is like one of the greatest single player games that I've ever had the experience. Oh, now you want to talk as soon as I'm excited about something. Ghost of Tsushima. Okay, so. Uh, my dad's voice actor. Yeah. He's not in Ghost of Tsushima, but he posts a lot of my stuff on Facebook. Okay. So he linked the LEC update I did mm-hmm. from Sunday and someone replied to it and she said she was up in the principal cast in Ghost of Tsushima, which I thought was crazy. Like, Who? Uh, I don't remember what her name was. Damn it! I'm sorry. See, you just brought it up though and now I'm thinking about it and she said I was good. So, you know, that's that's cool. Okay, well, good, man. you heard it here. The cast has complimented Ender. He did a great job on that uh, news break thing that he wrote. Anyway, uh, we'll see you guys next week. This has been episode 10 of season 6. I'm your host. Dracos was not here. Ender is still here, and Cadrill visited us. Have a not good one, guys. Long. I'm gone. Bye. Never coming back. <laughs>